It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Greg Ward. Welcome to the show, Greg. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Laban, thank you very, very much indeed. It's an absolute pleasure uh, to be here with you. Um, and thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm so looking forward to the conversation that we're going to have very shortly. Well, I must, I must admit, <laughs> in doing my research for this interview, I have been laughing a lot. And, uh, and also just now impressed by your amazing uh, digital professionalism <laughs> with the, the great slide intro there. What are, you, what are you operating there for the people at home? Uh, I am running on a couple of different systems, um, actually. Uh, uh, one is a Blackmagic ATEM Mini Pro, um, which I'm uh, using uh, as a multi-view currently and uh, a way of getting my um, Sony video camera into the computer. But the main system that I currently use is OBS, so that's the uh, open source broadcast software. It's a, a free tool. It uh, requires a little bit of um, uh, training um, to get it up and running correctly and I am passing the imagery that you're seeing currently on the screen is coming from a secondary laptop via a protocol called NDI. So it's a, a basically a, a network interface where I can send it via my LAN uh, from another machine and it, it frees up this machine that I'm currently connected on um, to only do the job it needs to do, which is basically do the video punching um, and uh, work with the CPU on the video side of things. Wow. But uh, it sounds really complex. I'm sure it's not. Um, but for someone someone with your background, young Greg, uh, it's not shocking at all because uh, we'll get into what you do in a second, but you actually come from what looks like a bit of an IT background originally. Well, enough, I do. Uh, I got into that because I'd spent four years in the Royal New Zealand Army and I was working in communications. So that lent itself to this, uh, you know, this love of, of uh, the technical side of business. So I've got this kind of great mix of human side and technical side, on, and I get a great deal of joy and enjoyment out of both of those. So the technical side was, after I left the army, travelled extensively, came back to New Zealand uh, after doing a small role with KPMG, where I was working in their HR department in a kind of a minor technical role uh, in the, on the IT side. When I arrived back in New Zealand, I thought, oh, I'll do this for a while. So I ended up working with Cubes and Librand, which became PricewaterhouseCoopers, and then went consulting at that time, right at the start of, of actually building my speaking business uh, at that point as well. But uh, it was a fairly natural crossover. I loved the tech, and I relished, even amidst all of the crisis and chaos and challenges that COVID has brought, I really relished this opportunity to be able to further into the technical side, particularly on the on the broadcasting um, angle. Well, just for the folks at home, Greg Ward, 
I'm about to read you through some of his resume, and it's ridiculous. So I hope you're sitting down because in, in addition to being a professional MC, and we'll go into that in a little bit more in, in detail as well, he's an impressionist, he's an actor, a TV presenter, a voice artist, a multi-instrumental musician, a classically trained artist, an improv comedian, and can speak three languages. <laughs> What what else oh, what message. else have I missed? Um, I don't know what you missed actually. There's a speaker. I, I, I'm, I'm what's called a serial enthusiast. <laughs> so I have this wonderful uh, kind of life where I look at something and go, Ooh, that looks interesting. Or they do that, and so I start delving down the path. And I've got a what a personality type um, that I've been told is 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 called a scanner, which is where you follow a path down for a certain amount of time until you're pretty much satisfied with it and then find something new and move on to the, the next thing. And I've always been like that, a bit of a magpie in, in finding the next new shiny thing. But what I really relish is, uh, as you'll just notice, we've used the word relish twice. Um, it's <laughs> words, eh? That's what we you do. You put it on your sandwich later as well. <laughs> exactly. Uh, is the uh, ability to find these great new things, but then I tend to take them to a very high level because there's something innate within me that I'm not satisfied until I've mastered it or I've got it to a point where it's better than, than the, the people that I can see around me doing a similar kind of thing. There's a real competitive streak within me too. And where did that come from, your competitive streak? Uh, that, came, that came, I think, from my upbringing. Uh, my father was a he's an amateur coach. I think it's probably the best way to describe it because he's never trained, never was a coach in any way, shape or form. But as kids, he took it upon himself to find ways for us to get better uh, in whatever we're doing. And, and a lot of that came from sport. And so I recall really vividly uh, running and swimming were two things that, that I excelled at as a kid. And he was really uh, focused on ensuring that we did the best that we possibly could. And which is a weird, it's a bit of a dichotomy because in hindsight, there was a hell of a lot of pressure and a hell of a lot of uh, challenge as a kid. Uh, but in reality, you know, your upbringing shapes you in a great deal of ways. And that experience has translated into, you know, wildly different uh, elements that I've done over the course of my life. Fascinating. And, you know, you, just that, that's, um, that personality trait that you're talking about, the seeker, have you ever done an Enneagram report? No. No, I've, I've kind of steered clear of, uh, of uh, labelling myself psychology, in a psychology, psychological way. <laughs> well, I just, I'd be curious to know because I, I think the reason why you and I connected so, so quickly um, when we met at the, the speakers' conference earlier this year in, in Adelaide, um, I, my guess would be that you are a seven. So it goes one through nine, not not in ranking, but it's just the I'm an enthusiastic visionary, and and I really identify with that, going down the path, and then until I've achieved whatever I've achieved, and then go and find something else, and and yeah. it means that we end up doing about a million different things in our life, career wise, and I want to explore some of those, some of your favourite, some of the favourite things that you've done and achieved in your life, Greg. Oh, look, there's there's so many things and. 
I, you know, when we have this kind of conversation, I always preface it with, you know, regret is a is a completely wasted emotion, and you should never regret anything you've done in your life because you you've done it, it's gone, it's in the past. You cannot change it. You can only change the way you think about it. Uh, but there's certainly things where I go, you know what? If life were different, if I'd made a different choice at that particular time, how would my life have turned out? What would you know? What kind of opportunities would have happened? One of those came uh, when I was uh, in the military, and I applied for and received the opportunity to go and work alongside the SAS uh, as a, as an attached uh, signaler, and that uh, was all done and dusted around about I think around about November or just you know start of December, and then we all went away for Christmas break. And over that course of the Christmas break, I was thinking more and more about the this opportunity. Um, but it, it, it also going going across to work with the guys would have meant that I wouldn't have had promotion. Because once you're across what we call going over the fence, once you're over the fence, there is no promotion in there. It's basically head down, work. Um, and then once you come out, back out, uh, no longer attached to that unit, then it would uh, things would change. And I've told myself that for a long time. But I think in reality that there was a certain element of fear involved in that decision. And I got back in January and I said, hey, look, you know, reconsidered this and I don't think I'll um, go and do it. And... Uh, they said, "Yep, that's no problem at all." Yeah, we know if you if we certainly don't want anybody who doesn't want to be over <laughs> over here, uh, which was a bit of a, a bit of a rebuke, uh, and uh, you know certainly felt a little bit stung. So that was one of those one of those little kind of things where you think back in your life, you go, "What would have what would have changed? What would have been different had I gone across there and and been uh, within that environment?" But uh, that's just one one little thing. I mean, spent a, a lot of time in musical theatre and opera. I've, forward and traveled uh, as a bass baritone uh, and the one thing that that is not a regret because I got as far as I could but I I made the final auditions of We Will Rock You in Melbourne and I did the audition in Auckland sang my heart out and the uh, musical director said yep that's cool um, can we see you in Melbourne um, in a week's time and so I flew across Landed in Melbourne, went into, into the uh, the audition hall, and Brian May and Roger Taylor from Queen were there, and Ben Elton was there, and I got to sing a Queen song to Queen. So I'm seeing, you know, these are these are the days of our lives, uh, with, with as you know, within an arm's reach is the the, the remaining members of Queen. So it was quite a surreal kind of thing. I didn't get in the show, which really, really pissed me off, uh, but. The experience was fantastic, and the and the recognition for me was, I'm at the right level. I'm where I need to be with that skill set and with uh, with what I'm doing. And so that that was a really good validation um, for me there. But there's been a lot of those kind of experiences over the course of my career. Well, I've had the pleasure of stumbling across some video of you singing, and mate, I am really blown away. I because I had no idea, and in the time that we were. Uh, talking to each other at the conference, you, I don't think mm -hmm. you ever ever once crowbarred it in there. Whereas if it was me, you definitely know about it. And 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 maybe maybe like the amazing Wintley Phipps that came on the show earlier this year, maybe you might share a few bars towards the end of the show for us for our audience. You're under uh -huh. no obligation. Oh, <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see how we go. It's uh. To be fair, it's been quite a while since I've really focused on the singing side of what I do. Uh, it's it's a skill set that is a physical skill, and if you are not doing it on a regular basis, uh, the quality of the voice 
will continually degrade. And one of the most challenging things I remember being being told this by my tutor, uh, my in, in uh, uh, the maestro, I should say, Gwilym Evans, who was training me, and he's an international opera singer, um, sadly passed away. But uh, he said, never stop singing. He said, the hardest thing in the world is to restart singing after you stop, because you have to retrain every single muscle. So when you are, when you are growing in it and continuing, that physicality remains and uh, you're toned. But it's very, it's very much like the way as you get older, it's, it's a bit harder to lose weight. It's, uh, <laughs> it's much harder to bring that vocal uh, quality back. Well, look, coming from the only the only sibling in my family who who doesn't really sing that well, I can hold a hold a, a note, but I've been really working on my voice this year, and I've been doing some. I did, did the course with Vin Jang, who I know you know is a speaker, coach, and an amazing keynote speaker, but also doing a lot of Roger Love's um, "Set Your Voice Free" training as well. And I've noticed a, a distinct improvement in my ability to hold my voice and and get some longevity, particularly in longer conversations. And, I'm, and I'll throw this to you, Greg. What, what's so important about having the ability to use your voice as an instrument in the line of work that you and I do? And the voice is, is your conduit directly into the ear of your audience. And it's up to us as speakers to hone that uh, tool as much as possible. And there's so many different ways of being able to do that. But it starts realistically with understanding how you actually sound, which for a lot of people, you know, you, you should think back, there's so many people who go, oh, is that what I sound like? When you record them and they <laughs> hear themselves back because it's not something we tend to do, right? We're having a, a completely subjective experience when we speak because the sound resonates, comes through all of the resonating chambers within the head and, and inside the body. And what we hear is not what you hear. So it's really important to, to be able to record yourself and then think very specifically about how you modify your vocal tone, your presence, your the autonomy, the way that you can project and do each one of those specifically. So you're not trying to fix everything and change everything all at once, but it's a crucial part of what we do. Um, and if you think of it as a uh, an enhancer, so the words that you say are important but the tone with which you say them and you convey them to that audience is critical. So, yeah, focusing on how the voice sounds, how you produce it is a crucial part of what we do. Yeah, and, and this is something that I've been um, sharing with as many of my guests that aren't professional speakers as, as often as I can. I've had the I've recorded about 51 or 52 episodes since in about nearly six months. And I've had oh, the congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. And and I've had some extraordinarily um, like t- talented, amazing, genius people in different fields, particularly with a lot of health and nutrition stuff. And whilst a lot of them are really competent speakers, and I've said this to their face, I'll happily say it again. If they were able to just enhance their ability to to get their message across in a way that is transmuted from here to there without any breakdown their ability to impact people would be a lot more effective in my humble opinion. Would you agree with that statement? Yes, I, I completely agree. But it also comes down to the intent behind how you present and what what it is that you want to create with that effect. What is it that you want to leave an audience with? Maybe we, a lot of us 
stumble into this uh, opportunity, right? And so we there's something within us that drives us to be speakers. Uh, and at, at times that can be quite challenging. And certainly for me, it's always been challenging um, to be the differentiators between being a speaker and being an MC. Because being an MC is all about you. It's all about your audience. It's all about everyone else. It's not about you. And if you make it about you, if you show your level of ego as an MC, that detracts from the jobs that you are attempting to do. Whereas when you're a speaker, it's yes, still about your audience, but it's very much about you. It's who you are. It's your journey and your your experience. And so that's uh, only recent for me as have I become comfortable in that space of being able to just go, this is who I am. This is this is what you get. And I'm and I'm really comfortable in, in presenting, uh, which has been a skill set that's taken. Uh, when I say recently, it's taken two years of pretty hard work uh, and focus work, much like any other skill, right? <laughs> you think you think everyone can open their mouth and speak, right? <laughs> but doing it in a professional, focused way takes a lot of time. Well, look, I want to explore this, this the professional MC side of things because I've been fortunate enough to, to MC a bunch of different things in my life, uh, including 17 of my mates' weddings and uh, always the bridesmaid, never the bride, although I got, <laughs> I got engaged in June, so that'll happen at some point. But um, Congratulations. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. And, uh, and over the course of of that period I'd, I gave up drinking. So I've, I've delivered a couple of them sober and it's it's been really enlightening for me uh, in terms of that whole ego and I and I cringe when I think about some of the earlier weddings where I was sort of telling gags and, and being a little bit about me. What are some tips that you can share with people that are mortified about delivering a, you know, a wedding speech or a, or a eulogy or whatever it might be that can help them mm. be a better MC? I think you nailed it uh, on the head right at the start there. And when, you, when you're saying that element of ego and it becomes about you, the, the moment that you stop worrying about, as an MC, worrying about what people will think of you and start concentrating on what effect you want to leave for your audience, for the audience, not, not how you're viewed, but how you can do this smooth segue. The idea is... As an MC, your job is to ensure that the, everything runs from start to finish beautifully smoothly. So you're the glue. You're that the oil between each of the sections. And those are the pieces that you need to, to focus on, to be the master of the two-minute break, the three-minute break, the five-minute, the ten-minute break, the ability to have material that, that can be more seamlessly between those sections and ensure that you have no dead air. That's My mantra is no dead air. You want to have that beautiful flow of everything going on so that you end up with an audience who is never confused or uncomfortable or embarrassed for what you're doing. So choosing humour wisely is a really valuable skill (laughs) when you're working as an MC. You've got to know what's appropriate, what isn't appropriate. I've seen some train wrecks um, in in my time as as an audience member, which is really cool. So I don't have to, it's not my responsibility (laughs) to be part of that. Oh, would you please please share a couple of those? Would you, or at least one? <laughs> well, I saw. Oh, I was doing a gig, and you know, talking about being an impressionist, I, I work at, occasionally as a hoax presenter as well. So I've got a couple of different characters that I use, but mainly this is a. I've got a German German guy um, who uh, comes out of the woodwork. He's always an expert in whatever field that I'm presenting for. And I was asked to do 
a centennial for a rugby club and everything about it screamed don't go here don't do this uh in fact, I rang them up uh, after agreeing to do it. I went back to them and said, you know what? In hindsight, I've had a good think about this, and I think that what you're asking me to do isn't going to work in your context. And they absolutely, they'd seen me in another, another environment, in a corporate environment. They loved it. No, 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 we want it. And against my better judgment, I decided to do it. So I go down. It's a provincial event. It's uh, quite rural, and it's uh, quite a big crowd. And I do my piece. So my piece was okay let's, let's just call it okay so roughly about a 40 minute presentation as my character and came off stage it was well you know okay received but i thought to myself yeah that wasn't really i, I should have stuck my guns with that so it doesn't didn't get the effect that i that i really hope to achieve then the mc gets back up now the mc has been drinking um from the from the first moment of that afternoon i'm sure and he is the, I think, the club captain of the of this particular club. And he gets at the end and he says, I'm going to tell a joke that got me banned from, and he named an organisation that's uh, pretty high up in the rugby world, uh, that got me banned. But I'm going to tell you it anyway. And he was well cut. And, of course, I'm not BMC, right? So I'm, I'm divorced from this. And I'm sitting there looking around the room going, who's going to stop him? No one's going to stop him. Nobody's going to actually do this. And I didn't have a mandate to get up there and stop him. Not my, not my gig. Not my, not, sorry, not my environment. And he gets up and he tells a, a joke that I'm an ex-soldier and I would never have told that. Oh, it was something that was just crude. It was completely and utterly inappropriate. Uh, and it just killed, absolutely killed the night. And there's two things that go with that, right? One is very poor choice of, of material but the biggest choice was the alcohol factor and that's the whole thing you know my dad used to say this and he's he enjoys a drink um euphemistically he says uh he uh would say beer in wits out and that's a absolute truism it's uh, i i don't i haven't even heard what the joke is and i'm cringing <laughs> <laughs> Believe uh, me, I don't. I so I'm not going to repeat it. It's one. Yeah, of these, please. It was, a, it was a shocker, absolute shocker. It's one of those things where because uh, I just I celebrated my fourth year of sobriety uh, on the 26th of August this year. Well done, mate. Well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. And and um, and I and I don't say that to to brag or gloat around. It's something I'm very proud of. But it's more the fact like that 99 of all the stupid stuff I did in my life it was when I was drunk. And and when you stop doing as much, when you're as drunk as I was, that that eats into your week quite quite a lot. And so that that 99% ends up being quite a few instances. And I really love getting up and and enjoying the the high of presenting or speaking or doing that doing this. You know, even though it's not live, um, sober. It's it's a, a dopamine or oxytocin or serotonin kick that that's pure and doesn't leave. A nasty hangover and uh yeah for, for that for that i'm really grateful so I, I look forward to being in a position where i can deliver you know a huge keynote somewhere or you know in front of a huge audience and and i'd love to i can't wait to, to see what that feels like but for you greg what's what's the biggest audience you've ever presented to uh in terms of 
presenting um, physically, uh, say in a conference setting, uh, a thousand people uh, would be, right, yeah, about a thousand, I think. Um, that was at a event in Barcelona, which was a centenary conference for a, a Swiss-based uh, association. But from a performance standpoint, as a uh, MC and performer, uh, 10,000 has been my biggest um, crowd, which was at the Queenstown Winter Festival. Uh, and then had another one, which is roughly there, I think it's about 8,000, which was another festival where I was um, performing as part of a, uh, a four-person a four pop opera group, which was phenomenally fun to do. It was a group called Lyrica. Uh, and we had the legs to go places, but unfortunately, logistically, they live two and a half hours south of me. Uh, and uh, it was just too hard to maintain the level of uh, uh, practice and performance that we um, we needed. But uh, yeah, the, the really interesting sort of standing on stage and looking out at that sea of people uh, and affecting them with simply your voice. It's quite, uh, quite powerful. Oh, I really like that, Greg. I really like that. Let's uh, let's go for with a bit of a change of tact here. Um, you shared some some pretty intimate uh, details of your life uh, at the conference, off the back of me maybe sharing some of my transformation and journey. And I just wondered if you'd be so kind as to share with our audience your experience, if you remember what I was referring to. Absolutely. And, and certainly, you know, as you're speaking about alcohol, alcohol is one of those things that um, has a significant bearing on this um, tale as well. And it's a, uh, although to be fair, I've not 100% given alcohol up. Um, I have maybe one cocktail, uh, maybe every couple of months, or if that, uh, and, and that's with my wife, which is a really nice thing to do. But uh, certainly alcohol does not feature in my life and it did previously. Um, so, and, and obviously what you're referring to, talk, and it also, it also talks about the couple of, um, the two years that it's taken me to become a speaker, <laughs> realistically, instead of instead of the MC side of things. Uh, so in, in 2018, May of 2018, I was employed to be the Master of Ceremonies for an association conference in Melbourne. And I flew there right on the Sunday on Monday morning, I had a conversation with the convener and he came and saw me and I could see that he had a bit of a need. He, he, he want, wanted me to do something. And uh, he said, Greg, I wonder if you could speak at the end of the conference. He said, we've got, we're not, we don't have a closing keynote speaker and uh, I've got a half hour slot. Now the conference themes were uh, performance, diversity and well-being. And so this conference convener said, oh look, I, I, I want to speak on the well-being side of things, so I'm going, to, I'm going to reveal some stuff about uh, uh, an anxiety issue that I have. Would you be able to do uh, a bit, uh, the final 15 minutes? I'm only going to be speaking for about 15. And I said, absolutely, of course I will, because that's the MC role. You know, you're going to do exactly whatever it is that's, that's required. But what he didn't know, and I wasn't going to reveal to him at that point, was that in the early hours of the previous morning, uh, I'm sure that morning, um, through a haze of alcohol, I'd written a note to my wife and I'd attempted to take my life. So that process there, I'm in crisis. So I've woken up in the morning, I'm basically wandering around the convention hall going, what the hell am I doing? What's going on with me? And, and that's when he came over and said, hey, can you help me out? And of course, then MC mode kicks in. Bang, here we go, right. It's all about you again, right? It's all about you. 
and this is where some of the that, that balance life balance was certainly not working well for me and we went through the conference then so we had two days there i spent the two days in crisis going what am i going to talk about how am i going to what, what am i going to say so i came up with basically a bullshit story uh, and it was something that happened it was a bit of workplace bullying that had happened when i was working in one of the accounting firms and it was true but it was also a bit of a joke i was, I was going to make a bit of a kind of light thing and we got to the end of the conference and he stood on a stage and he and he'd invited his wife and his son to join him at this conference because he was revealing to them something he hadn't told them before he'd had a near drowning with him, him and his son uh, out in the surf and they both don't swim well they got pulled out in a rip and it was just at that point where they were going under for the last time when he were they were rescued by a couple of paddleboarders just happened to find them happened to see them picked them up and took them back to shore and so for him it just had severe ramifications because he started to have sleepless nights and cold sweats and waking up feeling that he couldn't breathe and he realized that he had to conquer it and so off his own bat he went and got swimming lessons so he goes off and does swimming lessons and he hates every minute of it but he works at it and works at it until he eventually does this and he overcomes this challenge that he's got and he's revealing this live on stage in front of an audience full of people and most most importantly his family and I watched him do this and at the conclusion of it, I realized that my little bullshit story was not going to cut at this point. And for the first time, I stood on a stage and revealed to an audience how it is actually for me, what my, how I actually felt and where I was. I didn't tell them what had happened on that Sunday night, but I talked about the really high highs and the low lows and the long nights in, in uh, cold and lonely hotel rooms and the challenges that go with this lifestyle where you are facing an audience and I'm basically putting a facade on and that facade is Greg the MC hey how you doing how can I help you what I'm gonna do it's not untruthful it is me but it is specifically a bit of armor for that environment and so constantly I'm being this person that I think they want me to be and it's just not doing good things for me so from an alcohol standpoint, I wouldn't use alcohol during my job. It's not a performance answer. I continue. This is my one one factor is that it doesn't enhance performance, so don't do it. I wouldn't do it as a performer, as a musician or an or a, a entertainer, or certainly not as a speaker or MC. But afterwards, hit that hotel room and it's uh, the minibar and it's, you know, early hours of the morning. I'm cut, wake up in the morning, 5 a.m. or 5.30, get up, go back out to the audience. And then, of course, you know, it, and I'm bright and bushy-eyed, bushy-tailed and bright-eyed. But that process there, revealing to myself what was actually going on, uh, allowed me to then go back home, talk to my wife, and start the process of, of, of self-healing over a course of uh, the next six to eight months of really delving into me and uh, getting a sense of, you know, it's okay to be me. <laughs> I don't have to place put a facade on, don't have to be somebody else. And uh, in that same process, then I came across uh, Steve Lowell, um, who is a fabulous speaker coach in February of 2019. And uh, I signed him up as, as my uh, coach and mentor and spent a year working with him, went off to Canada, uh, presented on the Canadian stage, won a uh, world-class speaker award over there, um, came awesome. back to New Zealand and started, uh, you know, significantly finding those opportunities to speak. And what I morphed into was talking about essentially my story, as I'm telling you now, but also about what I'm calling vulnerable leadership. 
So it's the ability to have empathy, the ability to share with the people around you your own emotional experiences, which engenders a deeper level of team, which allows them to be more psychologically safe in their environments. Uh, because what we have, and I could have been one of those statistics, we have incredibly poor statistics in terms of uh, suicide, suicidal ideation, and all of the challenges that, that go uh, along with that, um, particularly in the uh, building and uh, contracting um, fields, construction field. So I'm doing everything that I can now as a speaker to do my part in, in bringing those statistics down. Wow. And thank you for sharing that, Greg. It's uh, it's as impactful to me as it was the first time you shared that with me. And 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 I'm really curious to, to try and understand this. I had a guy, Hugo Tuvi, came on the show recently who's a twice-survived. He had testicular cancer and then he had bowel cancer. And he's only 26 now. He got it when he was 21 and 25, I think. And we were talking about a friend of his that, that took his own life relatively recently. Mm. And I haven't had anyone super duper close to me take my own, take their own life. And and I said a few things that I maybe when I re-listened back to, I was kind of like, oh, maybe that was a little bit harsh. What is it about it? Like, do you know where this stemmed from? Do you know where this originated with you? I think it's... There's a, 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 a wide variety of reasons as to how you get to that place and everyone's going to be different. And it's, and it's, it's a place of, uh, of hopelessness, of there's not, you don't seem to see any way out of the status quo. And there's a lot of things that come down to how you communicate and, um, and how comfortable you are with yourself. But there's another element for me that, that goes back a uh, hundred years. Because we have a hundred year history of suicide and suicidal ideation and uh, really poor lifestyle choices within our family. And that goes back to my great grandfather who was hospitalized into what was then a mental institution uh, in uh, 1919. So he had uh, apparently he went in, in the old parlance of the thing, he went mad and was hospitalized and he died in this mental hospital. So we've always had this as kids and as a family as we have these hushed tone conversations about great granddad who was, uh, you know, he, he, he was mad. And my grandmother on my father's side also committed suicide. I don't say also suicide, but committed suicide yeah. at the age of 37 leaving my uh, father and his three sisters. Um, so a, a real, which is something he's never got over. And it's a, a, a incredible, incredible challenge. So his sister also uh, died from alcoholism. Um, he's got his own challenges in that same, same area. Uh, then we've got myself, we've got my brother, my, my uh, various other members of my family and, and, uh, and even further down the line, um, you know, looking at my uh, nephews and nieces and so forth, we've all had brushes in this kind of way. And so I decided I was going to do a bit of ancestry research because it, it intrigued me. I said, what was it about my great-grandfather? What is it about our line? So, so you know, we're genetically disposed to this, right? Must be. We must be genetically disposed. So therefore, let's go find out. So I finally wrote off and I, and I got hold of the 
record section in West Yorkshire. So this is where we we immigrated to New Zealand when I was uh, three years old from Yorkshire. I went back to the records and we found uh, that he had uh, a death certificate, but I also found out that he only spent a week in that mental hospital. He died, uh, sorry, he'd arrived on the 14th of February and he had died on the 21st of February, which is something which is something we had no, no knowledge of. We didn't know this. Uh, so I got the death certificate to arrive and I got my father over and we opened the certificate up and it, he'd had an autopsy done. So we went into that as well and I had a look at what it, what it said. And it said that he died of a brain hemorrhage following general paresis. So I looked up general paresis and it's, an old, it's another term for general paralysis, which is uh, the old term for syphilis. Bugger so me. He hadn't, he wasn't um, psychologically unstable. He had an STD and that STD had caused him to have a brain hemorrhage because it had been advanced enough. And the hushed tones that we had about him being in hospital were because people knew he had died of syphilis. And of course, in a marriage, that's just never going to be a good thing. But this begs these questions. So if my grandmother had known the truth of that, whether she did or not, would that have affected her differently? Because he was, she was two years old when he died. So what was the, what was the ongoing effect? And we've known this for years like this. It's always been, oh, I know, well, you are predisposed to something in the family, so it's obviously down your genetic line. The stories we tell ourselves have incredible power. And so if you tell yourself that story that you are predestined to be in this space, it's highly likely that given enough of the circumstances, you're probably going to end up in that space. And so this moment of opening this envelope and seeing this, this truth was mind-blowing for me to be able to go, I'm not predetermined. I can do, I have this moment and I can change the future. I can do exactly what I, what I want to do to increase those chances, which is another catalyst for me to be able to say these words to other people. You are not predetermined. There's nothing that says you must follow this path. So that's one of the, one of the biggest challenges. And, and I think we, are, we surround ourselves by those stories and we put ourselves into boxes. And the reality is we are our own self-limiting belief you've got to be able to break free of that and, and uh, find a way forward. Far out. That's so interesting. I think it was because it, it was the same thing that knocked off Henry VIII as well, or one of the Henrys, wasn't it? Yeah. And he went mad yeah. from syphilis, yeah. right? And yeah. and th this this limiting belief stuff that you're talking, you touch on, Greg, is something that's very near and dear to my heart because mm. the, medical, the medical professional, the medical so um, society love using – you have a genetic disorder because I was told by 20 different GPs over the course of 17 years that I had a genetic disorder that caused the heartburn that I had and it was incurable and I mm. fucking cured it. I, I put it into remission by cutting gluten out of my diet, right? And and that was after six months of sobriety. So it allowed my gut to heal. There's, there's a lot of science now coming out suggesting that gut health is mm. – also very effective and if um, or, or causes a lot of issues if it is if you have a lot of intestinal permeability or leaky gut whatever they talk about because like 85 to 95 percent of all the dopamine serotonin oxytocin that the body creates is in the gut so this this genetic you've got a genetic predisposition yes you can be predisposed but you need a trigger and and I just wonder hearing you talk now that if the the the, the um, 
aggressive lifestyle of being on the road and you know eating conference food all the time and having a few too many drinks might have contributed to disrupting the gut and then you know triggering this imbalance that, that went led you down this path um not saying it's the specific reason but it might be a mm. you know might be one of the key key factors it's so interesting it's so interesting and now that you've you've broken the shackle of that limiting belief now you're empowered to to share the story and and get other people talking about it. Do, do you feel like you've broken the the legacy in your family yes. now? Yeah, I think one of one of the one of the factors for me is working out how how to stop the um, the slide. I think one, another another factor is is I seem to exhibit quite a, a number of the symptoms, and I have never been diagnosed, but I seem to exhibit a lot of the symptoms of uh, bipolarism. So. I you know I have very high highs, kind of maniac. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, maniac highs and very low lows, and uh, you know with a, an alcoholic lifestyle that is uh, exacerbated um, on both of those uh, areas, right? So your peaks are even higher and your lows are even lower. So cutting that out and finding a series of strategies that work for me and certainly have shown efficacy for working up for other people as well has been really beneficial. So, so it's not a simply a matter of mindset to go, oh, you know, no, great, I've got a great mindset now, now I'm cured. Uh, the elements that work specifically well for me are having uh, exercise first and foremost. So got to have an a exercise routine and I have this routine for myself, which, which is at least 30 minutes exercise three times a week. And when I say 30 minutes, that's that I never do less than that. And it's always more. So it's, and, and always do more than three times a week. So it's really about having a baseline. So getting that exercise in, and it's got so many different um, uh, valuable parts to it, right? So the actual fact of going and doing the exercise is setting up micro goals. So you, you've got to, You've got to get up, you've got to move, you've got to get in a car, you've got to go to a gym, you've got to go, you know, each of these things is a goal in itself. And so you can keep congratulating yourself along that way. Uh, then setting the the uh, level of exercise that you're going to do and then doing incremental changes to that to, you know, keep on, always keep on growing no matter what you do. So that's there's some really good stuff there. And there is some very good scientific evidence that a regular exercise routine is as good as low-dose antidepressants. Uh, because of the elements of the endorphins that, that are released during that exercise process, but also the goal, the, you know, the mini goal kind of aspect too. So exercise crucial, um, uh, zero or, uh, or limit the amount of alcohol that you have. And we know that one unit of alcohol will kill half a night's sleep. So the sleep factor is crucial. Aim for eight hours every single night is my is my aim. And try and, try and you know, recuperate the body through sleep. Uh, another thing that's regular for me on a daily basis is multivitamins. And so, and again, I'll say straight away, I'm not a clinician, so I can, I'm not going to be suggesting or prescribing for people. I'm saying talk to your health professional if you if you want to you know, go down this road. But there is certainly scientific evidence that vitamin B6 is a strong anti-anxiety um, medication. Uh, but medication, though, as a supplement, should say. And also the uh, elements of uh, omega threes and fish oils and and the like too. So they're really simple things that you can be can be doing. But the final one is gratitude. Actually, being grateful, because you cannot be uh, in a state of 
depression if you are thinking externally at what you are grateful for. It's really to be in that spiral, right? They often say that that uh, when you are in a depressive state, you're dwelling in the past, and in an anxiety state, you're dwelling in the future. But if you can live in the moment and be grateful for what you have right there, you know, that's a, a beautiful and critical thing. And I've got a couple of little things here. Um, there's a couple of people I want to talk about. One of these is this guy here, Peter Goldwitzer. And he talks about intention setting really specifically as a psychologist. And the beautiful thing is, is that the brain doesn't know the difference between uh, fantasy and reality. So whatever you fantasize about, and I don't use that in a sexual way, as, a, as in a fantasy as in a, whatever might be coming up for you. Um, I use that perfect example would be, not that I'm doing a lot of plane travel nowadays, uh, but on an aircraft, when the cabin crew say, um, you know, look for your nearest exit um, so know where it is and count the row of seats. Well, I'm doing more than counting the row of seats. I'm physically thinking to myself and, and imagining what it would be like if there were no lights on in the aircraft. How would I get by? What's my touch points? Where is my seat? How many people do I have to go past and get through to get to that door? If the aircraft was upside down, how will it feel? Where will my feet be touching? What will I do? So all of those little tiny things, and I, and I do this every time, and I set an intent that because my wife says to me, you are coming home. Uh, you're flying, you're going you're gonna to be the person who gets out of that airplane. So I have to do every single thing that I can to achieve that, you know, whatever situation is. But Peter Goldwitzer came up with this, this concept of intention setting, and it's a really powerful tool. And talking about uh, positivity, this guy here, Martin Seligman, uh, he has came up with the concept of positive psychology. And he's a, a clinical psychologist, and he came to the realisation that after many, many years of, of working with, uh, with broken people, he said he could never get them past zero. He could, he could get them to a point where they were kind of healed, but he couldn't make them happy. And he, then he realised that there was a strong focus on uh, the sort of medical side of psychology, as in we're going to fix broken people. But prior to the First World War, psychology wasn't about fixing broken people, it was about enhancing people's lives. And so he started this focus on how can we enhance people's lives with positive psychology? And one of the biggest factors for him is the gratitude thing. And I've not done this piece yet, but this is what he says is write a gratitude letter. And it's roughly 300 word letter. You find somebody who's still living, who you haven't properly thanked for something within your life that you want, you want to make a point of. But once you've written this piece, you contact them and ask them if you can come and visit them. And wherever they might be, you go and visit them. And then when you go to their, their place, read them the letter. And so I've got a teacher in my life who I've not been able to locate. I really want to do this with him. But apparently it's life-changing, this experience of actually being able to tell the people, those people in your life who have had such a strong impact, exactly what it is that they did for you. And that sharing is, is, a, is an amazing psychological tool. So yeah, Martin Seligman, positive psychology is definitely worth looking up. We'll get the we'll have those in the the links down below for people on uh, YouTube and and on um, on the whatever podcast as well. That's so interesting that you say that, Greg, because uh, in six weeks between mid May and the end of June, I wrote my book, which was inspired by Les Brown, and there was a chapter in there about a school teacher when I was six years of age that gave 30 bucks uh, when we had no money 
and put on we put on the greatest impromptu birthday party ever. And she was only a, uh, a relief teacher. And neither my mum or myself could remember her name. And so we launched this manhunt. She worked at Middleton Grange uh, School, which is a, a Christian school in Christchurch in New Zealand. And we thought we'd found this the right woman. Turns out she'd passed away. And we were like, oh, man. And then we found out that it was actually this woman, um, uh, Miss Mandy. Miss uh, Mandy, I think her name was. And, and uh, we hunted her down. And she's a priest in, the, in, in Canterbury. And I had the absolute pleasure of reading the chapter of the book to her over the phone and sharing with her this wonderful, wonderful experience. And I, I mean, I didn't get a chance to meet her. I'm going to go to New Zealand when things open up and I'm going to deliver, I'm going to read from memory that chapter of the book to the assembly and she's going to be invited as a guest. And I, I can't explain to listeners how wonderful that feeling was because she didn't remember giving me the money. She remembered me vaguely as a kid and um, said some really complimentary things about me as a kid, which is pretty good for 34 years ago. And uh, it was a life-altering life experience. So I can't recommend that highly enough. That's How synchronous is that? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Uh, amazing and uh yeah because that, that act of generosity from her actually has impacted the way that i give and has and have has always impacted the way that i give as a result so profound profound so yeah gratitude we've we've had uh some other guests we had dr tom namey as well who's a preventative psychologist preventative um in the sense that they try and work on this stuff before it gets to where you were, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, amazing stuff. And, mate, I applaud you for, for heading down the, the direction that you are heading. And and with with the with the dialing back of the drinking, and no one's judging if you're not giving up or whatever, you've got to do whatever's right for you, right? Mm. Um, what are some of the other blessings that have happened in your life in, in those two years since that event? Oh, Completely and utterly clear focus. Um, the realization of uh, how I was using alcohol as a uh, a way of not dealing with relationships um, is probably one of the biggest biggest factors, and that it's really really easy to to use uh, the alcohol as a mask, right? And uh, uh, the cure for everything is <laughs> just have another drink. <laughs> Um, not having a need for it. I mean, well, I was I was a stockpiler. You know, you, you know, you're an alcoholic when when you are worrying that you don't have enough, and that whole process of going, you know, you go, even as a kid, you know, seventeen, eighteen, going out to bottle stores and and always concerned that I didn't have enough. I mean, what's enough? What do you need? You know, what do you need? Um, clarity of thought is a really really big thing and even even now you know say i might have an occasional drink it doesn't make me feel good and it's not that it's not about the the effect of the alcohol in terms of you know like a, you're euphoric it's just as a as a substance that you put in your body it just does really bad stuff it, it doesn't work um and again i'm not denigrating those who just you know who have a have a a drink who you know go out and enjoy yourselves and a couple of beers and and, and all good but it's it's a poison. It literally is a, a, 
and, and not good for you. <laughs> but that's the role model we have is we have this legal um, drug, which is alcohol. And, and, and everybody goes, well, that's, that's what we've got. So that's what we use. And it's a real, um, a real killer in that respect. But I've seen it do so much harm in my own family um, and certainly for myself and, and for other people around me. So uh, very grateful that, I'm, that it, it's not part of my life in that way, which is really cool. Um, and also that my kids won't see me drunk. You know, that's a, another really, really lovely thing because the experience I had growing up as a kid was seeing my father, um, you know, drinking at the kitchen table with a flag and a sherry in front of him, and which he'd polish off half it. You know, that my experience, my my training in how to drink came from watching the mem- you know this member of my family have a uh, very very bad uh, experience with it, uh, which lent itself to all sorts of different. Um, challenges and situations in terms of uh, domestic violence and, and other other challenges that we have in the family. So I'm very happy that it's uh, it's not a factor for me. Well, well done, Greg. And, and like the great Homer Simpson says, it's, he says something along the lines of alcohol, the, the cause and solution to all of, life, <laughs> all of life's problems, and which always cracks me up. But I, you know, for, for for the listener as well, you know, for for me, from from when I gave it up, and 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 the thought of being hungover now is too great a thought for me to bear. I, I like, I literally, I can't bear the thought of it. I also really like the fact that I've got this good streak of not drinking, where nothing's passed my yeah. lips. But um, one of the things, just touching on what you were talking about before, with regards to the emotional healing side of things, I mm. I really started to notice emotional healing after a year of, of sobriety. And, I, and I, what I put it down to, there's no sign, scientific, you know, data around this that I'm aware of at the moment, but I really mm-hmm. felt like that as my body was physically healing and I was moving more and looking after it and eating the right stuff, that it started to detox of sorts things that weren't supposed to be in my body. And, I, and they talk about the, the actual fat, cells in, your, in our bodies are really efficient at storing toxins. They talk about heavy metals and a bunch of other stuff, which is all scientifically proven. But I've often yeah. wondered whether trauma is physically stored in the body. And and whatever your version of trauma, trauma, trauma is any, anything mm. less than a nurturing environment. And uh, and as I started to develop, as in, in, develop into a runner, Greg, uh, yeah. When I started doing distances of about 13 or 14 Ks and above, when I got to that 13, 14 K mark, I, for the first year of running, would burst into tears. And it was tears of sadness initially, and then it morphed into tears of joy, which I thought was really interesting. And then after a year or so, it stopped. It's such an interesting thing. You know, there's, there's there's a, even as you said that, I'm thinking there's a strong mind body connection, right? It's like we are, we we don't know enough about. Uh, we 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 consider that our mind is inside the brain, but there is some evidence that uh, there is a a brain connection through the gut. There's a brain connection down through the parasympathetic nervous system, uh, and who's to say that that we aren't all that our consciousness exists only in the in the brain, and 
I, I certainly am not going to say anything uh, against the proposal that uh, we hold trauma in various different areas of the body because uh, I think there's um, you would be mad to discount that. And, and the, the better we make our bodies, the better our lives tend to be. But I, I, I concur with the elements of emotion, right? And exercise has this. Is it is one of the things that is they obviously the endorphin rush, but there's other elements that go with it too. And I have a specific thing for myself, kind of along the same lines, is that it takes me. I talk about the micro goals, and the reason I talked about the micro goals before in terms of exercise is because I find it very challenging. Um, not so much these days, but I certainly did. Where I couldn't get up, my alarm would go off, and man, I wasn't getting up, and I didn't want to. And there's no way I could do it. So I came up with a series of, of, of exercises that allowed me to get past that, which is tiny micro goals. So when the alarm goes off, I go, just open your eyes. That's all you've got to do is just open your eyes, <laughs> nothing more. You're not going to do anything more than that, just open your eyes. And so I'll open my eyes, right, because it's an easy thing to do. It's not hard to open your, your eyelids. And then you go, well, you might as well turn your head. So your eyes are open, just turn your head and turn the head. So now reach out and turn the alarm off. Okay, cool. Now that you've done that, so why don't you just slip one foot out of the bed? You're not going to get up. That'd be stupid. Just going to just going to slip one foot out, and by that process, I'd find myself up, dressed, and out out the door. Each one of those being a tiny little increment, and I call it beating the dragon of despair. Used to even even years and years ago, and I was still you know I I had to go through that process, and I could never. It took me so long to connect it all together. But now what I find myself doing is when I'm at the gym and I'm struggling away in the first, the first part of the exercises, then at some point my face will just burst into a smile and it just comes completely unbidden. And it's a moment. It's a giant smile. It's just like suddenly I'm, I'm energized. And then I it's a bloody great smiling. smile, by the way. <laughs> Thanks, mate. But I'm suddenly energized, right? I'm energized. And I can, I can feel myself smiling, which makes me smile even more. And I found myself, this was at the gym this morning, and I was on the bike and did, did about 40 minutes on this bike, pounding it out. And for the last sort of 10 minutes, I was, my mouth was in this rictus of a smile because I was just like in this really beautiful enjoyment space of I'd beaten the dragon of the spear. I'd got up, I'd moved on, I'd got the exercise done. And as a goal, I managed to complete that and go, what a great way to start a day. What a great way to, to kick off, you know, the next day of my life. Well, I think uh, beating the dragon of despair has to be the title of your next book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to throw that. I never thought of that. That's awesome. That's a bloody brilliant title. I think it is too, yeah. And you can have uh, a big dragon body with your head on it or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to go in a different direction here, and I'm going to throw you under the bus a little bit. Uh, but it's going to be a duel uh, going under the bus together because I'm I'm a fan of impressions as well, Greg. And oh, yeah. why don't we have a little bit of an impression off? And I'm I'm happy to start. And you've got to guess the character, and then you do yours, and I've got to guess who you yeah. are. So, and we've got to do it in a way that the person listening to this only uh, yeah. is able to hear it as well. So, <clears throat> I'll start us off. And I'll just uh, I'll, I'll create a visual. Um, I've got a I've got a freckle, a black freckle on my cheek. Right. Uh-huh. Oh, you. Uh-huh. Are you talking to me? Uh-huh. Oh, you. Uh-huh. Oh, you guys. 
Robert De Niro. Oh, yes. Congratulations. Well done. <laughs> nice. Nice. It's very, very good. Uh, okay. How about this one? Sure. Why is it that you're looking at me in a kind of way that I want to kill you? Why don't you go and get yourself a nice cotton drink? Shaken, not stirred. Oh. <laughs> it was the cross between Hannibal Lecter and and James Bond. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, and a nice canteen, some fava beans. <laughs> <laughs> I can say when you say I'm an impressionist, I'm not really I'm not really an impressionist, as in like you know a million a million different uh, uh, characters <laughs> and the like. Um, but uh, uh, you may be referring to um, Elton John. <laughs> you give us a bit of Elton John, please, a bit of Rocket Man. Oh, mate! Um, now you're asking me something. Um, she had my bed last night, pre-flight. Zero hour and I'm gonna be high as a kite by then. Oh, I'm missing my piano. Wow, we got him to sing, we got him to sing on air. Congratulations, well done. The um. Mate, not but not bad. I totally empathise with the uh, being out of out of sync, and maybe this is a uh, a spark for you to get out the vocal cords again and, and keep them fresh for the next time you get an opportunity to punch out a few tunes and maybe include it in one of your keynotes as a as your new career as a speaker. What are your th- what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I've, I've often thought about using the music side of things from a, a in a keynote standpoint. Right, it's um it's a really powerful thing. Uh, music is, a, is an incredibly powerful tool and the way you connect with audiences and people. I've got a mate, um, his name's Jeff Knight, who's a uh, a tenor, opera singer, uh, classical classical voice, and uh, he's got a phenomenal story. Actually, he was uh, I can't recall what gang it was, but he was a patched, fully patched up gang member. And uh, what in New Zealand? Yeah, 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 yeah. With the mongrel mob uh, or something. Oh, yeah. No, it wasn't mongrel mob. I think it was the Highway Forty Fives or something, something like along those lines. Yeah. Uh, and he came sort of over time. He saw the realization that you know this wasn't necessarily the lifestyle he was after. And he um, he said he remembers coming off his bike and sliding along the gravel on his on his in his leathers. And his bike smashed up and ruined, the, and, he, and he crashed outside somebody's house. So he goes into the house and sort of gets patched up and bleeding away. And he's sitting there thinking to himself, this is not the life that I really wanted to have at <laughs> this juncture. And a few other, you know, sort of situations happened along his life. But in the end, he, he actually uh, got taken under the wing by a group of people who, who created a syndicate. And they basically run him or ran him like a racehorse and went, okay, we're going to invest in you and you're going to go get the best... Uh, trainers, and you're going to get the best opportunities, and over the and we're going to invest in you, and then over the course of your career, you'll pay us back that investment over the with this time. It's phenomenal. I think it's what a brilliant concept as an idea, right? And so Jeff went across, went to Australia. He's living in Sydney now, and uh, got trained with the best singers and performers and and um, teachers, and he sings like an angel. Beautiful tenor voice, fantastic. Um, so he's done that, you know, what he does, he uses his music within his performance as well. Lovely, lovely stuff. And a really cool story, you know, going from uh, uh, incredibly challenging times to a, a very, very different um, scenario now. Very cool. 
he sounds like he might make a great guest on the Become Your Own Superhero show, Greg. He definitely would. <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. Listen, Bondi. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Greg, we'll wrap this up in a minute. But before we do, is there anything you'd like to finish on with our audience? Yeah, yeah, I do. There's one thing that I have a phrase that I use for myself, and it didn't come from me. It came from a, a philosophy, um, amateur philosophers. When I was working at Peterson Librand, we joined with Pricewaterhouse. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, yeah, Pricewaterhouse. And as, as a consequence, um, we had two IT departments now. And because I was working in the IT department, we got this chap in, came in from, from South Africa who was basically following each of us around and doing a bit of time and motion study and trying to work out what we wanted out of our careers, out of our, out of the work that we were doing, which is always challenging, right? Because you're now sitting there going, this guy has basically got my job in his hands. But he was a really nice guy. And he followed me and I was doing the server job one night and I'm trying to fix it. It's a Novell server. I'm not overly sure what I'm trying to do, but I'm working at it. And he's watching me like a hawk. And he said in his really strong South African accent, he goes, Greg, can you fix it? And I wasn't, I didn't really know any South Africans at the point. And it was, it sounded really harsh and as if it was like kind of judgment, but it's not, it's no, it's just simply factual. So I just want facts. I'm not interested in, in sugarcoating it. Um, and so I told him what the problem was and he goes, no, I understand what the problem is. Can you fix it? And I, uh, I, kind of, I didn't say anything because I didn't want to admit that I couldn't fix it. And he goes, Greg, it's easy. Either the answer is inside your head or it's outside your head. Which one is it? And it's the most beautiful moment of clarity to understand that, that we don't have to be the source of all our answers. Right? We can have an educated guess at the problem. But eventually, if we're going to go round and round in circles, the answer must be outside your head. So I would suggest that the best way to actually start looking at the, uh, the challenges that we have in life and problems are not necessarily a term, but they taking a moment, looking it up and looking outside and perhaps adding, adding that element of gratitude to that as well. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Greg Ward. Thanks, Ivan. It's been an absolute pleasure being here on your show. Keep doing all that bloody awesome work that you do, mate. Love it. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available and not only just bring them on but to develop relationships with them that build into know like and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire you'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience go to podcastingheroes.com it's p-o-d-c-a-s-t-i-n-g-h-e-r-o-e-s.com